welcome to the 2021 China Town Hall. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, we're pleased to bring you a special program organized in association with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations in Washington, D.C. And we are always happy to tell you that our program partners are the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. Thanks to them for their support of global affairs awareness programs in our communities. Our plan is to bring you a panel of experts on U.S.-China relations, U.S. foreign policy, U.S. trade and investment, and national security issues. Our panel is Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, Professor Thomas Schwartz, and Mr. John Scanapieco. More on them shortly. At 6 p.m. Central Time, we will shift our venue from Nashville, Tennessee, to Washington, D.C., for the broadcast of the National Committee. They will present Mr. Fareed Zakaria, CNN host of the Global Public Square, author and prolific columnist and reporter. He will examine the challenges and opportunities for both countries as they confront the most critical issues of the 21st century. We will provide you the link to the Zakaria broadcast so you can watch it directly on your browser or you can stay with our Zoom feed for the broadcast with the opportunity to share your comments in the chat stream. Last housekeeping notes, for our Nashville panel of experts, please ask questions. Please ask questions. The benefit of these webinars is for you to be engaged. So start early on with your questions and please use the Q&A tab on the screen. Questions in the chat box may not be seen and answered. And may I take the liberty of briefly telling you about the World Affairs Council. We are an independent, nonpartisan, educational, nonprofit association we were organized as a citizen-based public service to help inform the community on global affairs. We do programs like this in our in-person hosting of the Japanese ambassador on November 2nd. And we will work with high schools and universities to promote global awareness. We have an extensive library of programs at youtube.com slash TNWAC and our podcasts are in the Global Tennessee series wherever you get your pods. And like other nonprofit groups, we rely on you to help us to keep the lights on. So I invite you to become a member of TNWAC. You'll get the world famous World Affairs coffee mug or become a donor, uh, just $5 a month. Your gift will make a big difference in supporting our programming. Thank you very much. On to China. This afternoon's crop of email included a note from foreign affairs editor, Daniel kurtz Phelan with word of the new issue. In the tease, he wrote this. In September, in his first address to the UN General Assembly as president, Joe Biden pledged that the United States was, quote, seeking, was not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks, unquote. That pledge was echoed in different words by Biden's Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, and reinforced by warnings from a slew of other leaders about the grim consequences of a world split into warring camps. Yet, rather than offering reassurance, this chorus served mostly to highlight just how dismal the geopolitical reality has become, with suspicion and acrimony threatening to sink trust and cooperation, even in the face of shared existential challenges. That is the US-China relationship in 2021. To examine these issues and take your questions, we have Jeremy Goldcorn. He's the editor-in-chief of SubChina and co-host of the Seneca podcast. He moved to China in 1995 and became managing editor of Beijing's first independent English language entertainment magazine. In 2003, he founded the website and research firm Danway, which tracked Chinese media, markets, politics, and business. It was acquired in 2013 by the Financial Times. He has lived in a worker's dormitory, produced a documentary film about African soccer players in Beijing, and rode a bicycle from Peshawar to Kathmandu via Kashgar and Lhasa. He moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2015 and is a board member of the Tennessee China Network and a president's advisory board member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. John Scanapieco is an attorney at Womble Bond Dixon US LLP. He is a global business specialist and a member of the board, Tennessee World Affairs Council. He assists both U.S. and foreign businesses engaged in the global economy. For more than three decades, he has provided strategic guidance 
and counsel to businesses and individuals regarding their existing global operations or to those contemplating expansion. John's practice is focused on cross-border transactions. He assists domestic and foreign clients in connection with global legal issues in the United States, Central and South America, Europe, and Asia. He also advises companies that are contemplating pursuing a strategy in China, as well as companies that are currently doing business in China or with Chinese businesses. John has also worked with several companies in connection with the expansion of their global workforce. John serves as honorary consul from Great Britain and Northern Ireland in Tennessee. Thomas Schwartz is distinguished professor of history, Vanderbilt University. He is a historian of the foreign relations of the United States with related interest in American politics, the history of international relations, modern European history, and biography. His most recent book is Henry Kissinger and American Power, a Political Biography. Professor Schwartz has held fellowships from the Social Science Research Council, the German Historical Society, the Norwegian Nobel Institute, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the Center for the Study of European Integration. He has served as president of the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations. He served on the United States Department of State's Historical Advisory Committee as the representative of the Organization of American Historians from 2005 to 2008. Thank you all for being with us today. And uh, again, uh, for our audience, we have uh, put together a panel of experts on US-China relations, and I am really looking forward to their discussion and your questions this evening. Let's begin our conversation on US-China relations and how they affect our country and our communities. Jeremy, you spend every day digging into developments in China. Everything you need to know today, as the subchina.com website says, give us our uh, opening context on what's happening in contemporary China that we should have as we build on our understanding of the relationship. Uh, well, I think perhaps in past events last year, uh, you've covered obviously the the widening gap between the United States and China in many uh, ways. But inside China itself, there are a lot of changes afoot too at the moment. Um, and many of them, like changes elsewhere in the world, have been accelerated by COVID. Uh, some of them were probably uh, happening anyway. Uh, and all of them are under the control of Xi Jinping, who is going to probably prove to be one of the world's uh, longest ruling uh, leaders of any country by the time he's done, uh, who has uh, continued to consolidate power in his hands and has come out of uh, COVID-19 looking quite well with uh, uh, much of the general public as well as the sort of chattering classes apparently approving of the country's handling uh, of the pandemic. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, you have uh, uh, an acceleration of various crackdowns that were going on, on all kinds of industries and, and areas of, of life, um, ranging from internet companies uh, uh, to uh, wealthy individuals who may not be paying taxes, uh, to labor conditions, also often at internet companies, uh, but elsewhere. Uh, to uh, real estate issues. The government is moving to regulate all kinds of problems that it ha has shied away from in the past, and it's doing it really, really aggressively. Um, some of the actions are quite uh, understandable to many Americans. For example, many aspects of the, the crackdown on the internet, although they're often written about as though it's an attack on capitalism, in many ways, the Chinese government is just doing what a lot, a lot of Americans think uh, should be done with Facebook uh, and Google uh, um, in this country, which is to, uh, you know, put some control restrictions in place on how companies use algorithms to target customers and, uh, you know, the, the sort of surveillance capitalism. Um, there's also a concern with leveling the economic playing field. Uh, China is one of the world's most unequal societies, and that isn't a fact that sits well with the Communist Party. Um, but many of these actions are also extremely aggressive attempts to wrest 
back power for the state and for the Communist Party in particular. Uh, and many of the, 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 re, the restrictions and, uh, that are now being placed on, for example, internet companies, it's, it's unclear what, what the net result will, will be. Uh, and you know, there are those who say it's going to dampen entrepreneurialism in China. Uh, and there are others that argue if uh, it's done well, what you'll end up with is a country where the engineers are busy designing silicon chips and useful hardware, uh, such as drones that can uh, automatically hunt down American military equipment or something, and they'll spend their time doing that kind of hardware development rather than innovating new social media platforms. But um, we're in the midst of all of these changes right now in China, uh, and for many of them, I think it's too early to tell what the results will be. Great, thanks, Jeremy, for getting us uh, started. And uh, let's uh, examine uh, a little bit where we've come from in the relationship and how we arrived at this point. Professor Thomas uh, Schwartz, you're a historian of US foreign relations. Uh, our history with the People's Republic of China is complicated, uh, wrapped in uh, Cold War, global politics, uh, trade and investment developments, and, and much more. Uh, can you talk us through the recent history of the US-China relations remind us of uh, the elements that go into the current uh, engagement. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, now I, I thought about this at the beginning. I thought, uh, yes, it's the, the PRC is, is the main area, but we go back with China quite a long way. Uh, the United States uh, uh, sponsored the open door with China back at the turn of the century, supported Chinese territorial integrity, uh, believed itself to be a patron of China, American missionaries were very active in China in the early 20th century, uh, American traders also active. Now, the United States supported China during World War II. There was a great deal of sympathy for China against Japan during the war, and many Americans served in China in various advisory capacities. Uh, in 1949, when the People's Republic came into power, um, it was part of the Cold War. And the PRC coming into power uh, initiated a period of hostility toward the United States, which grew particularly intense after China intervened in the Korean War. The United States then did fight China for the first time in its history, um, some very severe battles. Uh, I noticed the other day that one of the most popular films in China this week is one that recounts a battle that China won during the Korean War against American forces. So there was a, a period of great enmity during the Cold War, particularly in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, the United States sponsored the rival government, the government that fled China, that landed at Taiwan, the nationalist Chinese government. Um, and the United States protected that government from possible Chinese invasion in the 1950s. There were some quite serious nuclear tensions uh, between the United States and China during the 50s when it seemed like China might try and attack Taiwan then or the offshore islands even. Um, our intervention in Vietnam in part came about because of a fear of Chinese expansion and Chinese uh, power in the region particularly. Um, uh, that uh, did not take place. China in fact uh, plunged into its cultural revolution and expelled most of its uh, uh, or, or cut off most of its ties to the world for a time. The great change in U.S.-Chinese relations happened 50 years ago um, in 1971 when Henry Kissinger went to China on a secret trip that set the stage for President Nixon's famous trip to China in uh, February of 1972, uh, one of the most publicized events in our history at the time. Uh, uh, that switch in China's loyalties from being a loyal communist uh, power with the Soviet Union to being a de facto ally of the United States during the Cold War would shape our relations during the 70s and 80s. Uh, China also took advantage of its position as a part of the, uh, as a de facto ally to change its own economic orientation. The Communist Party stayed in power, but effectively uh, a capitalist system came to rule in China that allowed for rapid economic development. That stalled a bit um, in 1989 when there was a challenge to the regime, which was put down fiercely um, at Tiananmen Square, uh, one of the most memorable events uh, in the US-Chinese relations that cooled our relations with China for uh, a few years. 
But Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader then uh, and who orchestrated and allowed the crackdown to, to, to occur, though followed a policy uh, that uh, aligned itself back to the United States and especially uh, in trade and economic measures and Chinese economic uh, development proceeded swiftly in the 1990s and, and 2000s. Uh, China entered the World Trade Organization in the early 2000s. China, many Americans hoped that economic progress and transformation would lead to a liberalization of the Chinese regime. And that was the great hope of the uh, early uh, 2000s. Um, uh, that has been disappoint, uh, disappointed. Um, in many respects, the, uh, the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, emboldened Chinese leaders who began to see their form of control and capitalism as superior to the West. And uh, Xi Jinping um, has been a, uh, a strong proponent of Chinese nationalism and Chinese uh, assertion of its uh, power in the world. Uh, that uh, has also led to the Belt and Road initiatives, to Chinese attempts to uh, uh, develop a stronger position within Asia. And in effect, uh, that uh, finally led in some ways, um, and one could mark the election of Donald Trump as a particularly turning point, but it was happening even sooner, of disillusionment in the United States with China and to a desire for a more confrontational policy, particularly uh, economic tariffs against Chinese goods uh, because of a feeling that Chinese trade had undermined uh, American manufacturing and led to a serious job loss in the Midwest. Uh, things seemed Trump promised a trade deal, which he got, but it was at the same time as the pandemic broke out and relations uh, began to uh, further worsen. And in some ways, the Trump administration began identifying China as a foe of the United States. Uh, that has not really, that has been one of the few areas in which the Democrats have actually shared in that view. Um, and the tariffs have remained on Chinese goods. Uh, the sense of China as engaging in a competitive uh, relationship with the United States, the fear of Chinese economic and military developments, the degree to which Chinese uh, uh, authorities have cracked down on the uh, Hong Kong's democracy and undertaken persecution of the Uyghurs has also soured the relationship. And recently, this has particularly been intensified over Chinese military threats toward Taiwan. So we have a history, it's been a history of ups and downs, of periods of great cooperation, uh, but now we seem to be entering into one of great competition and rivalry. Um, and whether that will be a Cold War or not is, I think, uh, the, the challenge now uh, uh, that we seem to be facing. Well, the question of a Cold War is certainly one that we'll uh, uh, drill down into a little bit uh, tonight. I suspect there will be a topic of interest in the Zakaria uh, broadcast as well. Um, the the U.S.-China relationship is uh, a multi-layered uh, uh, affair, but the, the challenges boil down to a competition between leading global powers. Uh, much of that competition and cooperation is in the area of commercial ties, uh, the massive trade between China and the U.S. Uh, John Scapieco, you're an expert on the business-to-business -business piece. Despite tensions, trade with China has not ended. Uh, this isn't a Francis Fukuyama uh, the end of the end of history, uh, trade continues. So walk us, if you would, through the, the state of the economic relationship. You're muted, John. Thank you. I always, I reminded Pat and I forgot myself, but uh, in any event, but you can't uh, discuss the um, US-China economic relationship without, I think, an understanding of kind of the, the cultural and political and historical uh, perspective. And I think both Dr. Schwartz and Jeremy did a really good job of kind of discussing all of those things. But, but you can see how those have had an impact, I think, on where we are today. As Dr. Schwartz mentioned, you know, with the Trump administration and imposing tariffs on a significant portion of the um, uh, of, of U.S.-China of imports to, to, to the United States, China then retaliating on U.S. exports to China, 
Uh, the U.S. now uh, fearful of uh, Chinese companies gaining access to what I'll call U.S. critical and emerging technology, you know, has adopted all sorts of new laws and corresponding regulations to curb China's access uh, to this technology, you know, in areas of, you know, artificial intelligence, energy, uh, critical uh, telecommunications and networking, and um, even advanced computing. China, though, always hit for tat and has responded with its own uh, laws and regulations around, and, and in fact, has adopted its own legislation that would be very akin to our CFIUS uh, rules, also adopting um, data privacy laws, export control laws. So, you know, you can see this now, this, this, this tension that is given between the two countries. So you'd think after uh, hearing from Dr. Schwartz and from Jeremy that when I was young, I'd say, oh, economically, this is all, you know, going slowly downhill. Um, but in fact, economically, you know, trade is at some of its highest levels. Um, it's approaching, if it's not hit an all-time high in some categories, it's approaching pre-pandemic levels. Um, you have still significant U.S. investment into China, uh, while Chinese M&A in the United States has dropped precipitously, uh, as well as in inbound investment, you're still seeing pretty strong uh, investment here, you know, in, in, in the United States. Um, but at the same time, you know, from a political, uh, I think the political ramifications being that President Biden, is, is, again, as Dr. Schwartz mentioned, uh, really can't lift the tariffs uh, because otherwise that would be perceived as weakness on China. And there's one thing in this country that people seem to agree on is we need to be tough on China. Um, so I don't think you'll see any movement there uh, through at least the midterm next year and, and really probably beyond. Uh, unless something significantly changes. And at the same time, while Jeremy, I think, is correct that, that President Xi is probably in, in, in the best place he's been in, in, in a while, there are still groups within China, I, I believe, that, that would like to see market reform. You know, to go back to that time before uh, this, this kind of resumption of more state control. Uh, and so, again, not wanting to look weak, then has to retaliate. Again, saving faith. Uh, in response to all of, I'll say, the U.S. this action. But again, as I said, you, you know, you'd think this would be uh, maybe a bad time, but I, I was looking at, and I, I wrote down some numbers here, I was looking at Amsterdam, China, Shanghai's uh, 2021 survey of, three, of their 338 members, and about 78% were optimistic or slightly optimistic on the five-year business outlook. And that's a return to the numbers that we saw in 2015 to 2018. 77% reported profits in 2020. 82% projected higher revenues in 2021 than 2020. Uh, so manufacturers that are producing in China, 72% did not have plans to move any of their manufacturing out of China. And of the remaining 28%, only 1.6% that they were going to remove all of their production from China. So again, we're seeing really strong, I think, sentiment of businesses operating in China. And if you look at the U.S.-China uh, Business Council, their 2021 survey, and that was 107 of their members that, that, that responded, again, um, a majority said they're profitable, and more than 40% plan to increase their investment in China. However, that doesn't mean everything's rosy because, again, I think uh, some of the issues that, that both Jeremy and Dr. Schwartz highlighted, you know, U.S. companies rank U.S.-China relationships uh, as the top challenge for their businesses operating either in China or with Chinese companies. State support for Chinese companies and the regulatory barrier that China has imposed that they, that they impose, I, I would say, disproportionately against non-Chinese companies. Um, all make doing business in China, you know, difficult. We're also seeing um, now economic nationalism in both China and in the U.S. And so as a result, uh, retaining Chinese workers, for example, is becoming more difficult as more and more uh, look to Chinese domestic companies be because they perceive it to be a better way to advance their uh, career. But again, I'm optimistic. Uh, in, about doing business either in China or with Chinese companies, 
you know, I believe you need to understand the ecosystem. So you need to understand what the rules are and how those rules are being uh, imposed on non-U.S. Uh, I'm sorry, non-Chinese companies, on U.S. companies, and then go out and, and, and get the, the advice and retain professionals with significant China experience to help you now kind of navigate um, that minefield. In the last year, we probably drafted uh, manufacturing agreements and supply agreements that over the next, say, five to 10 years, you know, and, and several billions of dollars worth of products coming from China to the United States. Uh, we've handled uh, over probably three or four billion dollars in Chinese investment coming in to the United States. So, I mean, business is there. Um, I, I believe, you know, a lot of this, uh, we talked about the politics, but a lot, a lot of this is political theater up here, maybe designed for their respective audiences. But at the end of the day, the businesses, I mean, we're so interdependent that I just don't see that changing unless, you know, we, we something happens that just causes, a, you know, it's a mistake more than anything else. Because I think we, we both need each other. China being under-resourced needs to sell its, its goods to the U.S. because it needs that, 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 that foreign currency to then buy the resources that it needs to keep the lights on and keep the wheels turning so that they can retain that control. So I, I'm very optimistic. I just think you have to be smart about what you're doing and understand what you're doing um, because it is. I mean, you are swimming with sharks, but I think it can be done. Great. Uh, thanks, all three, for uh, our opening uh, context and background. Uh, I'm going to uh, move around from uh, topic to topic and, and invite our panelists uh, to jump in, but I'll, I'll direct the question to uh, one in particular, but uh, all three can, uh, can gang up on, uh, on the issue. Uh, John, let me follow up. You talked about the, uh, the interdependence continues. We're seeing uh, tremendous uh, disruptions in, uh, in global commerce. Uh, Traditional on-time deliveries have been impacted by shipping delays, labor shortages, and, and other impediments. Can you give us a, a little more granularity as to the, the global supply chain relationship uh, with China? And uh, you know, we can acknowledge that a lot of the, uh, the cause of the problems we're having with uh, dozens of ships backed up at Long Beach uh, is uh, American domestic issues, not enough truckers, not enough rail cars, et cetera. But uh, talk about that connection between the US and China, the supply chain, which is getting a lot, lot of attention uh, in the last year or two. You're on mute, John. In January of uh, 2020, um, you started seeing, you know, when China started shutting down because of COVID, you uh, had, um, uh, um, you had a supply shop, I mean, a, a supply shop. So we couldn't get goods from China. Then you had, then as China was recovering, you had a demand shock around the rest of the world. As a result of that, you had the, the shipping companies, um, um, you had the shipping companies um, waylay ships. So they were putting mothballing ships. At the same time, China was shipping PPE literally all over the world. So to markets where they didn't traditionally, um, you know, send goods. So now you have containers that are stuck in maybe uh, Africa or in other or in South America or in other places where there's no, there's not enough goods coming from those places back to China. So you're short all of these shipping containers. Um, and so that has really caused, I think, a significant in terms of the backlog of, of getting, say, goods from China to other parts of the world. You also had, at the same time of the pandemic, uh, manufacturers just shut down. And so they, they depleted their, their inventories of, say, raw materials, right? And then once we started to recover, we recovered as a whole all around the world. So you had to backfill your inventory. You then had an increased demand for basically everything all over the world. And so all of that coming together now has created um, uh, at least this, this backlog of, of being able to get raw materials, of being able to produce goods, and then of getting be able to ship those goods from uh, China to, say, the United States. And then as you touched on, there is a shortage of truck drivers 
there is, and, and, and also uh, dock workers and all the rest, and this is causing a backlog. But it's also due to just the increased volume. I was listening to a podcast the other day there at the Port of Savannah, and they were saying how just the volume of goods coming in was, was like 50% more than they would normally see. Then you tack on all of these issues with offloading and then moving the goods, um, and then you have warehouses that are that are totally full. So even if you had the trucks, you can't you know you can't move the goods. So I think all of that together is what is causing this. Now, when will this end? I've seen anything from uh, you know middle 2022 to even into 2023. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I know some of the logistics providers that I spoke to they're only getting about 60% of their requested containers for next year on their contract. So it looks like to me, it's going to extend out even beyond maybe 2022. Well, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully see enough presents under the Christmas tree this year to, uh, to get us through, but uh, that's a, a good insight in, right. into uh, how all that works. Uh, I've got a, uh, an area that I'd, I'd like to know more about, and, and Jeremy, as the editor-in-chief of uh, subchina.com, and I, I get your newsletter, it's terrific uh, to be able to keep up with uh, the developments, even just scanning the, the amount of uh, material that, uh, that you've uh, produced. Uh, that uh, accompanied with your decades-long experience in China, you've followed the course or uh, the evolution of Chinese uh, regimes from uh, you know, the last, I would suppose, 25, 30 years uh, with uh, great uh, interest. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in uh, the leadership in China in terms of global aims, economic, military, and uh, political. And, and what do we know about uh, President Xi Jinping's uh, goals for uh, the future of China? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Still learning to unmute myself after all this <laughs> time. Um, he, he has been quite explicit about uh, his major aim, which is the great rejuvenation uh, of China, uh, in his words. And to understand that, I mean, we should have a little bit of historical context, why not the rise of China, but the reju rejuvenation. And it, it does tie in with a question uh, Tanya Gonzalez asked in the chat about the Chinese mindset to do with never forgetting national humiliation. So what is often referred to as the century of humiliation was basically the end of the colonial period where China was, uh, you know, uh, uh, being picked over for its, its, its assets by foreign powers where it was very weak. Uh, it was behind technologically. Uh, and it ended up as, uh, you know, characterized as the sick man of Asia. Uh, it uh, both entered and exited the Second World War as a country where most people were illiterate and starving. Uh, and uh, where foreign powers had, you know, run amok for, you know, a century. Um, and uh, recovering from this has been a big part of Chinese sort of myth, national myth building since the communist revolution in 1949. But Xi Jinping has made particularly the re rejuven focused on rejuvenation. In other words, China's already stood up under Chairman Mao, as they used to say, and it got rich under uh, Deng Xiaoping. Uh, now it's time to rejuvenate and it's time to essentially for China to take its place on the world stage. Um, and if you look back over, you know, several thousand years of Chinese history, for most of human history, China has been one of the richest and most technologically advanced nations uh, or groups of people on the planet. And for many Chinese people, including Xi Jinping, reclaiming that status is very important. So I'd say the big picture is Xi Jinping wants China to be great again. <laughs> so, um, uh, but I, how, how you get there is sort of complicated. Uh, how do you make China great again? Uh, you know, you have to make it respected and feared, and that's got something to do with a lot of the military saber rattling and the, you know, growth of uh, the Chinese military, and new technology, new, you know, just this week, a hypersonic missile apparently being tested by China. Uh, you also make it economically strong. Um, but 
much of it is also inward directed. You know, at, at the top of the uh, the hour, I was talking about these crackdowns on on companies and especially the technology industry. And some of this is Xi Jinping wants to make many of the things that are weak inside of China uh, wants to fix them. Uh, so I, he is the most ambitious political leader on the planet right now, and he, he's dreaming really, really big. Uh, and, you know, sad to say, while we in the United States are fight, fighting about face marks and vaccinations and gendered pronouns and, uh, you know, millions of other things which may be worthy, uh, in, in China, there's, uh, uh, there, there, there are big things afoot and uh, the people in charge have a plan. Well, um, that's that's an interesting insights in, into uh, where China is going to make China great again uh, theory. I, I think that's a, a good bumper sticker for a lot of what we're seeing. And uh, Tom, let, let's let's talk a little bit about a, a point you raised: the, the Cold War, um, whether this is or isn't. And and I think you left it uh, as a question, but let me put the question to you. Uh, is China the, the new Soviet Union? Are we uh, looking at a Cold War with China? Um, and, and if so, what, what does that mean? Well, I, I think the analogy is one, um, uh, David Sanger has a, a piece in the New York Times talking about how strongly the uh, Biden administration resists using the term the Cold War. And you started our program by talking about how President Biden, of course, said we're not in a new Cold War and uh, all of this. So, so there is this uh, desire to avoid that terminology because of what the Cold War connotes. The Cold War was essentially both an ideological and a nuclear weapons competition. Uh, the Soviet Union and the United States represented different ideologies, quite, quite different ideologies. And um, they also built nuclear weapons uh, till they had enough to destroy the planet. Um, 10,000, 15,000 nuclear weapons, both, um, that were aimed at each other and that had they ever been used would have, uh, would have killed most uh, people in the world. And Down. that we seem we seem to be uh, uh, facing uh, in terms of a competition that uh, could be seen as a cold war. I, I actually found um, the the fact that China sent three astronauts up to a space station. Uh, to be another echo of the Cold War. Um, one of the reasons the space race got going was this idea that the United States needed to compete with the Soviet Union, which had launched the first satellite and then the first uh, man into space. And now China and the United States are uh, have competing or uh, seem to be wanting to compete in space as well. Um, it is, uh, there are echoes of it in so many ways but I think there are some profound differences. Uh, we are so economically interconnected. And what John said about the degree of trade, never, uh, we never approached that with the Soviet Union, that economic interconnection uh, between uh, uh, us the way it is with China. Um, we, it, it's very likely also that it would be very difficult uh, to find allies or to have a strong ideological block of countries that wanted to align with the United States. Most countries want to be able to trade with both. Um, even in Asia, this is also the desire is not to choose between the United States and uh, China. So uh, there are uh, competing aspects uh, that make this different from the Cold War. Our vocabulary will probably have to come up with a different description to probably best capture it, but it is, uh, it does seem to be a type of competitive relationship, at least in, in certain respects uh, and ways in which one looks at the, the, the nature of the Chinese state, um, ways in which one uh, uh, perceives Chinese uh, interests um, and the threat, uh, for example, to Taiwan, but it is not quite the Cold War of the US-Soviet Union style.
Well, talking of uh, about Taiwan, uh, Jeremy, you, you talked about Xi Jinping and, and his uh, ambitious goals. And uh, how did you phrase it? Uh, the most ambitious leader, dangerous leader in the world? Oh, done it again. I think I said ambitious, yes. <laughs> okay, very good. I'd, I wouldn't want to misquote uh, that uh, of, of that import. Uh, but on Taiwan and this uh, notion of, of conflict between the United States and, and China, um, is, chi is Taiwan on Xi Jinping's short to-do list? I, I fear that it is. Um, it's, you know, when this topic comes up, you, there seem to be two types of uh, views that are common in, in China watching circles, journalists, think tankers, politicians. The one is the sort of chicken little uh, view, kind of uh, panicky view that, oh my gosh, the Chinese are, are going to invade Taiwan tomorrow and there's going to be a war tomorrow. Uh, and there's often a, a sort of a, a thread of breathiness that runs through them. Uh, but the opposing view also seems to me a little bit perhaps uh, not in touch with all the realities, which is to say, actually, you know, the status quo is working very well for everybody and nobody would really want to um, uh, do anything to disrupt the status quo. And the, the, the reason that I am uncomfortable with that view is that Xi Jinping has now uh, developed himself, uh, you know, something of a personality cult around himself. He's on the front pages of the, the party and state newspapers every single day. His name is always the top headline on the state-owned news uh, services and propaganda services. His, his, his thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics is making its way into uh, elementary school textbooks. Um, this is, in other words, not a guy with a small ego. Uh, and he is directly setting himself up uh, as somebody who's an equivalent in stature to Deng Xiaoping and even more especially to Chairman Mao, to Mao Zedong, who, you know, in the communist Chinese communist pantheon is the you know, is the uber god. Um, but what has Xi Jinping actually done? I mean, you could say that China is running very well now and it's dealt with various challenges over the past 10 years very well. But I mean, none of these are particularly stirring achievements. Oh, he kept interest rates at, uh, you know, property prices didn't fall and, uh, you know, everybody got a little bit richer so they could have one more Starbucks and, you know, okay, he banned video games, so at least my kid isn't playing video games, you know, for 40 hours a week. But I mean, none of these, what stirring achievements are there? You know, Chairman Mao liberated the country and, you know, showed foreigners that China wouldn't be jerked around. Deng Xiaoping made the country rich. Um, uh, so if he doesn't take back Taiwan and reunifying, as they call it, the motherland is, is you know, a major part of, of, of the mythology of the Communist Party. If he doesn't do that, I, I don't really know what he can do to ensure that he has a place, he truly has a place uh, in the pantheon. Uh, so that's what worries me. So that's why I wouldn't, uh, uh, I don't sleep that easily at night when thinking about this question. It, it seems in the last uh, couple of weeks, Taiwan has been a big issue. The, uh, the Chinese military has flown a number of aggressive flights into the Taiwan uh, air defense uh, identification zone. And there was a lot of conversation about the US being drawn in and, and responding. Uh, let me throw this uh, open to the three of you. What, what is your sense looking at the American body politic and the ambiguous policy about coming to the aid of Taiwan uh, what do you think would be the American response? Uh, John, do you, do you have uh, any thoughts on, uh, is, is America ready to, uh, to send uh, four aircraft carriers and, and three bomber wings to the Western Pacific? You know, if you look at it, I think from just the pure politics of it and look who is now running uh, our, you know, our government, uh, there's such China hawks that um, I would not be surprised if that would be the way that the politicians wanted to go. Now, coming over to the military side, I don't know if we're in a position to really do, really in the sense of defending Taiwan 
um, in the way that I think would be necessary. I, just from, and again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the military or, or even the, the politics. This is me just from, you know, my business trying to understand the politics and the military and how they would respond. But I, I think it would be very difficult. Um, but I can definitely see these current, this current group of politicians um, all wanting to take, you know, how do you, how do you say I'm tough on China if they invade Taiwan and then you don't do something about it and, and imposing sanctions or whatever? I, I just don't think that's going to cut it. And, and that, to me, may be where we get ourselves into trouble because of, of just the way American politics works, um, that these folks, you know, they're afraid they're going to lose if they either on the liberal side are not liberal enough or on the conservative side, they're not conservative enough. But there's one thing they're all are, they all hate China. So I gotta, I don't want someone to out hate China me and get myself, you know, un, un, lose my seat that's making me all this money. So I don't know, that maybe is a, is a naive kind of businessman's approach to all of this, but that's, that's how I see it. The hey, only thing, go ahead, Tom. I, I, yeah, I, the interesting thing, I had a Chinese student uh, the other day who raised this question in class and said that she had been uh, to a Taiwan, uh, at, at a Taiwan university where the professor raised the question of whether the, the students thought the United States would intervene to protect Taiwan. And all the students said, yes, of course, the United States would try to protect Taiwan. Uh, but then she had also been in an American classroom and, and the president raised that question or the teacher raised the question. And none of the American students thought we should protect Taiwan. So. I, I'm not so sure that John's right on this. Uh, in effect, uh, there is a strong constituency for not interfering um, that would uh, also come into play here. Um, you know, the Taiwan issue raises a lot of very profound issues about America's identity. Uh, does it defend a country that is a democracy? Um, would I mean, Afghanistan had all sorts of problems there, you know, and but even there, supposedly Americans had said, oh, yeah, it's all right to get out. And then when we got out, we felt very, a lot of Americans felt very disgraced by the way we got out and the manner in which we, we left. And it, it, it certainly not helped Joe Biden at all to have gone out that way. So it, a public opinion could change on a dime. Um, so it's not clear to me exactly how we would come down. A lot of it would depend on how China went about this. I think if China were smart, of course, it would probably try to get Taiwan in a manner that would be difficult for Americans to intervene, namely through sponsoring um, strong uh, pro-Chinese unification party in Taiwan, uh, perhaps making offers in a, in a way muddying the waters. An all-out invasion uh, would be, I think, a more difficult uh, undertaking in, in the sense of raising the question, and especially if Taiwan resisted and fought uh, and did not surrender uh, immediately in that sort of manner, it would certainly stir up feelings in the United States that would be passionate that uh, America has to defend democracy and this type of thing. But I do, think, I do think it's dangerous. I think this is where the idea that we could get into a war without really, really recognizing what, what might happen is certainly there, a provocation. Uh, something could happen in the Straits that would would create that type of conflict. Jeremy, I, I think you're uh, you're on record as being uneasy about what's going on there. So let me add uh, another dimension to the the military equation between China and the United States, and that is the United States uh, in recent years uh, or the last year uh, has developed something called the Quad which is a loose affiliation of India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. And most recently, something called AUKUS, uh, which uh, caused a ruckus with the French. And uh, the news was mostly over submarine contracts. But uh, in, in, uh, in the con uh, context of uh, US-China relations, this is a brand new defense uh, pact designed to uh, exert military coordination and cooperation and power in the Indo-Pacific region, and it's Australia, UK, and the United States. How does that figure into the equation looking out from Beijing as they see people ganging up? Um, you know, clearly the Chinese position in recent years has been more aggressive. Um, I was in the uh, foreign ministry and 
and we were having a nice visit with a World Affairs Council delegation, and it was very polite, and there were kind of softball questions to the senior foreign ministry official, and being a retired naval officer, I asked uh, the impertinent question of when will Chinese aircraft stop interfering with uh, reconnaissance flights in international waters, and that caused a ruckus, and you know, I, I would have thought in, in the foreign ministry, there would be a little more diplomatic response, but it was pretty aggressive. So uh, tell us about these uh, defense packs and, and what's, what's the view from China about this ganging up? Um, and they play uh, straight into a, a narrative in Beijing that the US is trying to prevent China's rise, I, I, I think, and that it, it is doing that through all means possible, ranging from you know, sanctions against you know, uh, uh, Huawei, trying to uh, block Huawei from the US and other markets to AUKUS and the Quad and these new military developments. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, in some ways, they're not wrong. You know, AUKUS and the Quad, the, these developments, although they never put China in their founding documents or their public statements, it's very clear that China is who they're talking about, whatever they're talking about, you know, the strat strategy in the Indo-Pacific, you know, it means China. <laughs> so um, in some ways, Beijing is not wrong to see it like uh, as, uh, you know, the US trying to orchestrate, uh, uh, you know, constraints on its power. Um, but I, I guess from Beijing's point of view, the, these are, are very unfair. Uh, uh, attempts to um, slow its rise. John, let me, uh, we're, we're closing in on the top of the hour here, but let me return to the economic uh, questions of the day. How should uh, U.S. businesses view uh, the current and likely future evolution of trade and investment with China? What's, what's uh, out there in front of us uh, that might be uh, a little more optimistic? <laughs> well, I, I think what Thanks, they, Jeremy. Need to do, they need to they, they need to understand that um, we are in this, this age of competition. And with that now is going to come great regulation to ensure, for example, that China uh, and Chinese companies don't get access to what the U.S. deems to be critical and foundational technology or emerging technology. I mean, this, this is all, and from my perspective as a businessman, this is all about who controls this critical technology because that technology is literally the foundation for the next 50, 75, 100 years of the next generation of business. And this is, you know, if you look at the United States, they want, you know, right now we are number one or 1A in pretty much all of these technologies that have been identified as critical. China, okay, as we've heard from both Dr. Schwartz and Jeremy, or even from Jeremy, make China great again, or, you know, something along those lines. I mean, they want the same thing because that's how China is going to be great. And that's how China is going to ensure its greatness going forward. So I think businesses just need to understand there is going to be regulation. There are going to be barriers. There are going to be some challenges. But like, like any business, you, once you understand that, then you factor that into your business plan. And so you're seeing it now with maybe an increase in prices or they're absorbing um, the increased cost of doing businesses and, and all the rest. But, but I, again, business just has to understand that the ecosystem, both in the U.S. and in China, and then adapt uh, to fit um, both of those ecosystems if they want to be successful. Well, uh, let me, uh, we're, we're short on time here, but I want to get a, a, a plug in for Professor Schwartz's book, um, the uh, Henry Kissinger and American Power of Political Biography. Um, uh, Tom, you've written a, a terrific book on uh, political biography on Henry Kissinger, who was the architect of the opening in China. And uh, he summarized much of uh, that history and his outlook in his book on China. Uh, give us, uh, if you can, in two minutes, uh, your assessment of Kissinger's views on the, the current situation and uh, the future relationship with China. <laughs> Well, Kissinger at one point would have been called a, a sort of panda hugger. I mean, he was someone who was uh, very much involved with uh, China, very convinced of China's significance for American foreign policy, believed that the 
the turning of China was a key factor in, in, uh, in uh, pressuring the Soviet Union and ending the Cold War. So he, and he certainly played a key role in the economic opening of China, both in his uh, company that uh, Kissinger Associates in terms of its consulting, and he's often been used as an intermediary with the Chinese government. I think what Kissinger fears is uh, a sort of pre-World War I association. One of the things that existed before World War I was a rather extensive trade between Germany and England. Uh, both countries were very, I mean, Europe was economically a place where people traded in these sorts of circumstances. That didn't stop war from breaking out. So in that sense, economic inter interconnections and business doesn't necessarily prevent political leaders from in effect sleepwalking into war. And Kissinger's great fear, I think, is that the United States and China could also through this misunderstanding, since both of them see themselves as sort of countries that want to be great again, um, if they did to borrow that uh, usage, that, that they both um, uh, could be on a collision course. And so his great plea is for them to develop ways to understand, to find common interests that they can cooperate on as well as compete with uh, each other. So I think his his concern is he's grown quite pessimistic uh, about this, uh, the fear that we are moving toward a type of new Cold War um, and is still hoping, uh, hopeful though, that the United States and China can sort of head that off. And I think that that is uh, the great challenge really that he sees. Jeremy, I'm gonna ask you to take us up to the, uh, the top of the hour and I'll, I'll express uh, thanks to you and uh, Tom Schwartz and, and John Scanapieco and we'll, uh, We'll flip into the Fareed Zakaria broadcast uh, at the top of the hour. But Jeremy, uh, one of the uh, the principal concerns of the United States is the humanitarian picture in China. And we've uh, labeled what's going on uh, with the Uyghurs as uh, a genocide, uh, a, a very powerful uh, terminology to uh, to attach to a humanitarian issue. Uh, we've, we're four months and change to the Olympics in China. There's noise about you know, uh, boycotting, et cetera. So give us the context of what's going on in this humanitarian back and forth. Is it, uh, is it something played up when we wanna poke China or uh, are there teeth in the American resolve to address that issue? It's difficult to know. It's it certainly, and in the Trump administration, it was played up to poke China. Um, I think the genocide de designation itself uh, which uh, was not, you know, uniformly accepted by scholars, uh, was seen as a way of, you know, poking particularly aggressively. Um, uh, there wasn't any, you know, there hasn't really been much follow-up to the rhetoric, though. Um, I think that uh, some of what's going on in China right now, particularly with the Uyghurs, uh, has caught the attention of the world and is very much to the detriment of, of, of China's image globally. Uh, and maybe that actually matters more in other parts of the world than in the United States. Um, but I don't really get the sense that human rights have much of a place on Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden, the Biden administration's agenda when it comes to talking to China. Uh, and the fragmented uh, um, civil society actors that uh, are, are trying to organize around human rights causes uh, are generally, you know, fragmented and without much power. So uh, I, I think the human rights uh, issues in China are kind of going to be something that is put in parentheses for the next few years. Uh, whether that's right or not. Any uh, any last comments while we uh, wait for uh, the Fareed Zakaria uh, broadcast to pick up? John, any, any last thoughts? Uh, yes, you know, I, I think one of the things we've heard a lot of great information today, and, and I think, you know, I tell this to a lot of my clients when they're doing business in China, maybe for the first time, tell them you got to take off your American glasses. And you, you can't just evaluate everything that is happening in China or coming out of China through the lens of an American, because China is not the U.S., and Chinese citizens and Chinese government leaders are not U.S. Um, government leaders and citizens. And you need to really put yourself in the, in the shoes of, or, or at least try to view it from the perspective of China, 
look, I, I could work in China for another 30 years and I will never understand China. Um, I try to get glimpses of it here and there, but I, I feel like if you can at least try to, to look at what is happening, I think it will help you evaluate and understand better and help you make better or more informed decisions when it comes to your business, how to do business in China or with Chinese companies um, and, and, and really understand even sometimes where the government is coming from. I think it, it would be, it's very, very helpful. And that's where, and I'm going to put a plug in for Jeremy, you know, where, where his, what he is doing is, is, is so helpful and it, it, it's such good information because it's really, you know, there's somebody, you know, folks on the inside helping us get a glimpse of what's happening. And it really does help. Uh, make you know better decisions and better choices. So that would be what I would like people to leave people with. And you know, don't look at China as the enemy. It's just different. And you know, there is going to be this competition, but I think we can get along and, and be very successful together. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll double uh, double down on that and and uh, highly recommend that uh, people visit uh, subchina.com and uh, subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, Jeremy's the editor in chief there, and he and the, the team. Uh, do a fantastic job of uh, keeping people up to date on what's going on in China. That's very kind of you, both of you. You're you're quite welcome. We, uh, it's a great service that uh, that you all are providing. Tom, any uh, any last uh, thoughts before we uh, roll out of here? Um, I uh, I I I feel like I learned, uh, especially with hearing from John about the degree of economic connection uh, that was a bit of a surprise i would have thought there'd be a more of a deterioration and it just goes to show that uh, you know politics there is a sort of theater in politics that uh, uh, politicians play to domestic audiences and and business can go on uh, without any changes and that's uh, that's fascinating in some ways i'm not sure what it portends and certainly world war one is not a great example the, on that score but it's still fascinating <laughs> All right. Well, we, uh, we are extremely thankful for Professor Thomas Schwartz, Distinguished History Professor at uh, Vanderbilt University, Jeremy Goldcorn, Editor-in-Chief of SupChina.com, which, uh, as you've heard, we can't recommend more highly, and John Scanapieco, Attorney at Law and Expert on uh, International Business uh, Building Bridges uh, between uh, businesses, and especially in the United States and uh, Asia. Um, and John, I promised I would mention that uh, you've got the kids to go to college, so you've got your shingle out. And uh, anybody looking kid, for my kids are any anybody looking for a fantastic attorney to get them involved in business with China, uh, Japan, uh, Europe, um, and and in the meantime, as the honorary consul of uh, the United Kingdom, um, I'm, I'm sure that you, you could provide great recommendations for, for uh, uh, finding a pint of Guinness in, in uh, Nashville somewhere. Well, well, we're going to- Lots happening between, lots happening between the US and the UK. So that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll tee that up uh, for another time. Again, uh, thanks to you, uh, you three. Uh, we've had a, a fantastic uh, hour of conversation. And we're going to switch to the National Committee on US-China Relations. I've got a, a screen open, they haven't started yet. Uh, we will put that in our Zoom box here, um, not our boom box, uh, our Zoom box. And you can, you can stick with us and continue to chat and uh, enjoy it via our uh, connection. Or you can uh, look in your chat box here and find the live stream uh, link and just watch it in your browser or your phone on the way as you uh, head out or however is, is uh, best for you. Um, we do have maybe another minute or two before they come on there. And um, I think uh, that's about it. Jeremy, did you have something more to say? You, oh, I'm, you, I'm you, good. I, I've good. depressed everybody, so I'll, I'll keep <laughs> quiet now. <laughs> Well, I, I enjoyed your chuckle when I used the word optimism uh, in, in relation to, to John, but uh, 
no, this is what uh, makes these invaluable is to, to hear the uh, insights and perspectives uh, and the back and forth between experts on, on these topics. So we're, we're pleased at the World Affairs Council to bring this uh, conversation to you. And uh, we hope that you will uh, continue to watch our programs. Take a look in the youtube.com slash TNWAC uh, video channel. There is uh, a wealth of great material in there, uh, over 100 webinars in the last year. And um, our podcasts are in the Global Tennessee series, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. Our website is tnwac.com, excuse me, .org, and uh, you can become a member there or uh, drop a, a nickel in the bucket, and we will greatly appreciate that. So um, I will hope to be adroit enough here, uh, gentlemen, to uh, switch to Mr. Fareed Zakaria, and I think we're probably uh, in, a, in a hold pattern with uh, that broadcast. But thanks again uh, to you three, and we will be back with uh, more programs uh, with these uh, distinguished speakers in the future. Good night. <laughs>